Hey, it's Carolyn Ahrens from Renovar here, and I just wanted to let you know that we're going to be beginning the next book in the Renovari Book Club on November 30th. The book is Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman, and our facilitator is Dr. Walter Fluker, who is the director and editor of the Howard Thurman Papers Project. It promises to be a really amazing learning opportunity, and I hope that you can join us. Learn more at renovari.org book club. We've got to understand, dear brothers and sisters, the kingdom is not just behind stained glass windows. It's not just at meetings like this, as powerfully as he's evident here. God is moving in this incredible sense in this God-bathed world. Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and I have something special to share with you this week. Venerable, one worthy of reference, one deserving of respect by virtue of their character, Roger Fredrickson was a venerable. His influence on Renovare as a movement was profound. He was a founding board member and frequent speaker. Roger was a pastor in the purest form, a kind soul, a friend to many. What I remember most about Roger was his levity and his sincere ability to see people. Roger treated the person in front of him as a beloved creature of great value. He even took Paul's encouragement to greet one another with a holy kiss seriously. As socially awkward as it was, there was a genuine joy, a pure holy delight in his greetings. I honestly miss his kisses. Now this month would have been Roger's 100th birthday. I'd like to share with you a talk he gave back in 1999 at Renovari's first international conference in Houston, Texas. The event was centered around a book that was just released, Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy. Now, towards the end of the recording, you'll hear Dallas engage Roger in a wonderful conversation. But first, here's Richard Foster introducing Roger. Renovari and what we do is not about personalities but about a message of life in the kingdom of God. And that's one of the reasons that we always work as a team. Because then the various gifts of the people of God can come forward and we can live and move in that and be strengthened by it. Of course, the life in the kingdom must always be enfleshed. And that does take people. And we're so thankful for the various ones that uh, teach me and teach you and help us all. Roger Fredrickson is one of those kinds of persons. When I first was considering a move to Wichita, Kansas to teach at a university there, I mean, I thought Wichita, Kansas was the end of the earth. And uh, it's not. I want you to understand that. It's a lovely place. It is not the end of the earth, though you can see it from there. And uh, very wisely, the college president, when Carolyn and I went there to just 
be together and think about this idea. He invited Roger and Ruth Fredrickson to meet with us and have dinner. I tell you, that president knew exactly what he was doing. I immediately fell in love with those two people. What they, they just had the ability to kind of put their arms around the city and the world and people and everything. It was a great blessing. Roger had come to that city of Wichita to pastor a church that had really been broken. There had been a church split. You understand about those things, I bet. And uh, great, huge facility downtown, probably seat a few thousand, and there was just a f- couple hundred folk left after... Many people had left and built a very big facility. And I watched Roger take that church. He wrote a book about it called The Church That Refused to Die. And I watched that, and whenever I could, I would just try to slip in. I remember once coming, Roger doesn't even know this, I came to their New Year's Eve service, just sat, just because I wanted to soak in that life, and just the life of God. And Roger's the only person who has ever been able to get me onto a committee. You do know that Bible verse. God so loved the world that he did not form a committee. But Roger got me on a steering committee to bring Layton Ford for a campaign in the city. I just watched how he threw his arms around the city. We'd meet in Hispanic churches. we meet in all kinds of places in our steering committee. And how... The love began to flow, and then the last service, and then after that service, we went over to the church that had split away from Roger's church, and the the hostility was such that they wouldn't allow each other to go to the other church building, even just walk in the building. And uh, I just stood there amazed as we shared, thanked each other, and then Roger stood up and said, you know, you all know what's gone on between our two churches. And then he turned to wonderful pastor of that other church, and he said, I believe it's time to bury the hatchet. And he walked over and hugged that man. And I thought, the kingdom of God has come near, you see. And that's Roger Fredrickson. He's speaking to us this morning. And I know he will point us to life in the kingdom of God and what that means. Roger, come. Bless you. I had a friend who some time ago gave me a statement that flies in the face of what Richard said. It deals with a dilemma that we often get in, once in a while get into the church. I was walking in San Francisco along the Golden Gate Bridge when a man, I saw a man about to jump off. I tried to dissuade him from committing suicide and told him simply that God loved him. A tear came to his eye. I then asked him, Are you a Christian or a Jew or a Hindu or what? He said, I'm a Christian. I said, me too, small world, Protestant or Catholic. He said, Protestant. I said, me too, what denomination? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, well, me too, that's amazing. Northern conservative Baptist or Northern liberal Baptist? (laughs) He said, Northern conservative Baptist. I said, I don't believe it. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist or Northern Conservative Reform Baptist? He said Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist. 
I said remarkable Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern Region. He said Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said a miracle. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region of 1879 or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region of 1912. He said Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him off. Now, in the face of this, let me just say, before the session began, we either laugh or cry about that, don't we? I met the pastor of the Metropolitan Baptist Church again, who serves a church now in Texas. Phil Leinberger, where are you? Come down here, please, just for a minute. Will you? As Richard has indicated, one of the great spiritual experiences of my life was when Metropolitan Baptists, and I want to say this in deep love, a great Southern Baptist church, and our tattered First Baptist Church, American Baptists, gathered for worship, which Richard had to hug each other again. I know that, I know that. We did in the restroom just a little while ago, so we do it again. And I want to say, this man had the courage to go to a board of deacons, some of whom said, we don't want to go into a church building that was stolen from us. And our people said, we don't want to drag out old dead bones again. And somehow we said to them, we pray each Sunday, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We cannot do that and live this uptight way we're living. And out of it came a reconciliation service. Phil, I've carried you in my heart ever since. In fact, in my study, I've got the picture of the two of us greeting one another. Great. And I want to bless you and thank God for you. God bless you. Yeah. I really think, in a way, that's my speech. I'm going to be very, very personal with you at the outset. Not because I want your pity, just to state a fact. Two and a half years ago, because it has a point, I was diagnosed with leukemia. And I want to say that by love and prayers, a marvelous oncologist and sophisticated medication, I'm doing very well. Ruth and I greet each day with joy and wonder. And, and gratitude. Now, resources come in at a time like this because I went through several days of the dark night of the soul, St. John of the Cross said. But in the midst of it, there were assurances and prayers and love and finally a profound new sense of the presence of God. The Renovare office shipped me. It was a great package, the third chapter of the divine conspiracy, which deals with what Jesus knew, our God world. 
I sat down one night and started to read that. I was so entranced and overcome. I at times wanted to shout. I wanted to, I wanted to weep because there came to me after all these years of preaching about the kingdom, intellectually understanding the kingdom and having intimations of the kingdom, there came to me a great new awareness of the wonder and the intimacy of the presence of God's kingdom, in which I have rejoiced and in many ways grown in these last years. Strange and amazing things happened. I was driving back from the hospital in a park that we call McKinnon Park. A boy was coming home from school. It's a simple thing. He had a knapsack over his back. He had a lunch bucket in his hand, and he was just dancing. And I just stopped and almost with tears of joy watched that boy dance with freedom. And I thought about Jesus' incredible statement, unless you become as a little child, you'll in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. And I said, Lord, I thank you that I see the kingdom all about me. And since then, in all kinds of interesting, amazing, unexpected places, I have seen and experienced that kingdom for which I thank God. The sad thing and the things I want to say briefly here grow out of a love and a passion for the, may I dare say it, the mainline church and the institutional church, to which and I, and I recognize we come from many different backgrounds here, but that has been my habitat, so to speak. And I say this in love, and yet with pain, the church has not been at that point. And we know that. This is why some sense we're here, wistful and longing, wanting to be taught. And we're richly blessed with the whole session last night. The church has settled for the superficial stuff. We know that. It's been a consumer gospel in many cases. It's been self-centered. It's a question of, you know, how do I get in? And as... Our dear brother Dallas says it's bumper stick theology. Just forgiveness will get you in. Which, of course, leads to a superficial understanding of what the church is all about. And Gallup's poll indicates 94% of the American people believe in God. 74% say they have some kind of commitment to Christ. 34% claim to have been born again. Yet... No transforming impact in society. Moral sleaze. I don't need to dwell on this. Violence, broken homes, addictions. So in the midst of this, we discover, we ask ourselves about the gospel we've been preaching. A phrase is used in the divine conspiracy which speaks of sin management. Our program has been to arrange somehow that people can get in. It's kind of like a glorified insurance program. We know that. On the right, on the right side, we've had, and I say it with gratitude, we've had evangelical theology, which has stressed reconciliation. It's stressed forgiveness. It's spoken of the atonement, justification by faith. You know, these are the massive, how shall I say it, rock on which the Reformation is built. But you see, it's been, it's a little, if I can use this analogy, it's like baseball. We, we, we've got to go th- around the bases to get home, but we get the first base and stop there. And the tragedy is waiting beyond us is something far more than just the beginning. The, the fact is that on the left side, 
which has been, as we classically have said, social action theology. We've attacked it. We have attacked social ills of the organized away, so to speak. The removal of structural evils has been what we've dealt with on that side. So there was with civil rights and the Vietnam protest and the word liberation of the oppressed came to the heart of it. And people felt in a way I've dealt with them that prayer is kind of tinkering, that we're, we're not dealing with a personal God. That's, it, there's a God that's kind of removed. It's almost like a form of deism. Now, that's not true of everyone, but it has tended to be true on that side. I want to say very personally, we have a son, our oldest son, who uh, uh, was a political science major at Yale, got a scholarship uh, to go on to Harvard Divinity School, came out during that time, spent a week on a hunger strike protesting the Vietnam War, worked for George McGovern, a fine, keen human being with a great compassion for people, regardless of your political persuasion, that's true. And Randy worked among the Native Americans in western South Dakota with a passion. And we'd have these discussions about lordship and surrendering and the deeper element of what is involved in the kingdom of God. And then one Monday, dear Randy called, and he said, "Bless." I thought of that last night with deep emotion. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. I said, my conscience, Randy, what's happened to you? He said, I've capitulated to the Lord. <laughs> mother and I, Ruth and I stood there. His mother and I stood there and wept. And there began to emerge in his life the kind of thing. And I'm, I know this is a dad talking. There began to emerge a kingdom style of life that was holistic that caught up the personal, the justification, the forgiveness, which is at the heart of what we believe, but also moves across the landscape to touch people where there's oppression and need and pain. And too much of the church has not dealt with that. We know that. And we rejoice in the fact that Randy's involved in a prison ministry, pastoring a church, moving among, in many cases, the disenfranchised and the poor that are caught on the edge of society as we know it. So the condition of the church, dear friends, for many of us, we know that, has been we have shallow, self-centered, carnal Christians who say, I want it my way. You know, the test of our own love for each other comes in this transportation from the hotel over here. It's very interesting to see how we react in those situations. I have a Catholic priest friend who preached on peace one Sunday, and he said, I went to the window and looked at the parking lot, and I could tell that that sermon hadn't even touched them the way they were trying to get out of that parking lot. And there are broken relationships. Ruth and I, in the last 10, 11 years, have spent a great deal of time in renewal, and I find that at the heart of church after church, there's misunderstanding, there's criticism, there is brokenness, and God cannot work through those institutions, if I can put it that way. Or take the matter of the church settling for an agenda that's largely institutional. We get all fired up about carpets and painting bathrooms and writing budgets and all that while the world goes to hell. We discovered within walking distance of our church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, on the basis of a survey, 800 youngsters were within walking distance of our church, one-third of whom came from single-parent homes, which led us to a ministry, you know, after uh, school a care for youngsters at that point. You know about that. But the fact is we have spent a massive energies on maintenance 
just getting the job done, surviving, which grows out of the fact that we've had, if I can say this, a, a, a partial theology, a truncated sin management, let me use the phrase again, kind of theology. This is why we've come here, I believe, to learn, to grow, to, to drink deeply the kind of thing we heard talked about last night, which leads us, and will be talked about all through this week, which leads us to the fact, let me just say in passing here, that kind of life in the church has not led to any transforming impact on society. You know, we have subtly been conformed to the age. We breathe its spirit. We, we, we live in its ethos. It's almost like a subtle cancer that eats at us. Instead of saying boldly, somehow we've got to take another look. We've got to deepen our lives. We've got to move into areas where we've never been before. Which leads us to the fact that we have to come back simply again to Jesus as our great teacher. This is, brothers and sisters, a didactic book. Most of it is written to explain to people how we are to live in the kingdom. Take, for example, Jesus and, and, and the people, men that he, men and women that he called into his kingdom. He said to James and John, follow me and I will make you. What does that mean? And I'm always intrigued reading that story of Matthew where Jesus comes along and he saw him. My conscience to see Matthew, to cut beyond all that surface stuff and get at the real man and say to him, will you follow me? And I'm taken with the verbs that say he straightway got up and followed him. He had no idea that he was going to find himself that you're seeing miracles or, 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 or hearing the teachings of Jesus, which many times he had to explain. And finally, in some way, his death and his resurrection. And as far as we know, he, he was martyred. But he began a great life of adventure following him. This is what we're asked to do. Jesus poured his life into that handful of people. He taught them. He modeled for them. He explained parables that they could not understand. Yes, there's a mystery about the kingdom. The gracious rule and reign of God that draws near to us. Made available in Jesus. So like them there. We now, with the living Christ present in his spirit, are trying as best we can to open ourselves and learn of him, meek and lowly, as we heard said last night. And when Paul, let me just say this in passing, because sometimes we play Jesus over against Paul in some circles, that that's not true at all. He spoke about, to the Galatians, I am in, in, in anguish, I am in pain that Christ should be formed in you. And when he speaks about writing to the Galatians, walking in the spirit, that we will bear the fruits of the spirit. This is Christ-likeness in the kingdom. And he spoke to the Ephesians about the fact that the end of it all is to grow up into the maturity of Jesus Christ, to be new creatures in him. That's the possibility of what this conference and what our life is, is, is all about. So it's life in the kingdom, which is so near at hand. And I want to say again personally that in this, how do I say it, the light's coming on. I've seen the wonder of that over and over again. Jesus is at work in the gracious rule of God that begins to envelop personally and socially 
our lives. I took our granddaughter as a graduation gift, our oldest granddaughter, as a graduation gift uh, from college to Haiti just after the first of the year. Ruth has a niece and her husband that are there. They've been there for 14 years at Good Samaritan Hospital against incredible odds, dealing with the pain and misery of a country so near within our hemisphere. We've never had a consistent policy about Haiti. We've just gone zigzag on the whole thing. And we had an incredible experience. And I remember sitting on the second or third day in the pediatric ward and, and seeing this 15, 16 little infants, some of whom were already orphans because their mothers had died in childbirth because of malnutrition, and saw these four Haitian women, not their mothers, but caring for them, mothering them, feeding them, washing them. And I found myself, without thinking about it, humming, Come thou fount of every blessing. O to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Bind my wandering heart and so forth. It speaks about that in there. And as I, as I was humming, not aware even of what I was doing, the women began to look at me and there were smiles and they started to sing in Creole. Come thou fount of every blessing. I want to tell you, Jesus walked there in the midst of that. But we come home, it's a very, very simple thing, and sit down, Ruth and I, some mornings, because we have wrens that have built, Mama and Papa have built a nest in a birdhouse. And sometimes Mama Wren, I'm sure it's she, sits on the railing and looks at us through the window. And I think of the fact that Jesus said, you know, if your father takes care of the birds, he's certainly going to take care of you. We've got to understand, dear brothers and sisters, the kingdom is not just behind stained glass windows. It's not just at meetings like this, as powerfully as he's evident here. God is moving in this incredible sense in this God-bathed world. And we need to be aware of that, see the signs, move in it, learn from those situations. I want to close by just saying very personally, years ago at youth conferences, it illustrates the kingdom. At youth conferences at Green Lake, Wisconsin, a man came named Clarence Jordan. Now, Jordan came from, come, came from South Georgia. He had that beautiful southern, even more so than Texas in some ways, where he'd say, I want to talk to you about the economics of Jesus. <laughs> and boy, that just scared the bankers to death. And he would say, I'm talking about people that couldn't get a loan at your bank. You know, you know how it happened? Clarence Jordan became a Christian as an adult. He always read, by the way, from a Greek New Testament when he read. And when he read the Sermon on the Mount, he said, this is the Lord's teaching to me. Went to Southern Seminary in Louisville, majored in Greek, so he could really get at the, the message from the heart. The Lord instructed him. Just as, Richard, you are faithful to this vision of Renovare, Clarence Jordan said, in effect, we need to form an interracial farm called Koinonia because his background at Georgia, you know, Georgia State had been in agriculture. So they begin to revive the dead prostituted soil, grew nuts and peanuts and, and, and all that manner of thing. 
We took 10 of our people from Wichita and went down to Koinonia. We saw the bullet holes. We heard the stories, not told with anger, but with pain of what had gone on. This is before the days of Martin Luther King. Well, in the, well, Clarence was gone when we were there. But in the days that were on them when Clarence was living, a man named Millard Fuller, who had made a mint as a very sharp attorney. His wife was so fed up with new boats and houses, etc., that she went up to New York City to be counseled. And Millard sought her out up there, sitting on the steps of a Presbyterian church. Millard and Linda talked about Jesus' statement to the rich young ruler. Go sell all you've got, give it to the poor, and come follow me. That becomes the calling for some people in some places. So they said, I've heard of this Clarence Jordan. Let's go down and learn about the kingdom. And Miller tells very humorously about how they had one cow on the farm. Clarence was on one side and Miller on the other. I don't know how the cow stood it. And while they were milking, talking, as Miller says, between the flank of the cow and the tail of the cow, he said, I learned about the kingdom. And God laid on me the whole vision of decent housing on this globe, an incredible, crazy dream. At the end of last year, Habitat for Humanities came to be known. And some of you have been involved. How many of you have been involved in Habitat? Put your hands up. All over the place. Marvelous. Had built 70,000 homes. In our town, we've built 40. Catholics and Methodists and Baptists. First time the Baptists got together on much of anything in building a house. Young people, women have built homes. I'll never forget when we visited Koinonia and Millard, who was there then, took us around. He said, I want to show you what's going on. We're going to eliminate bad housing in Sumter County. And we got to this one place where a marvelous African-American woman said, I want to say I'd only had dirt floors. I had no running water. I tossed my excretions out in the bushes. And then she said, I got a house. I got a home. Cement floor, running water, electric lights. She said, I danced all night and sang hallelujah. <laughs> because I'd been given a home. Now, I realize this is a kind of a dramatic statement of it. But when I say I'm open to the kingdom... Jesus, I want to serve you. I want to be obedient. I want to listen. And I want to obey. So that somehow I build on the rock. None of us here knows what adventure he leads us into. But you come home and it's a very simple matter. And here's dear Anna. Anna is no Habitat for Humanity worker. She is a woman who cleans and deals with a the grass and the flowers at the place where we live, called Trail Ridge. And Anna is so happy. She was coming on to work at 4.30, working until 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. And I said, Anna, you're so happy. She said, well, yeah. She's a, in some ways a, a simple person in the way we were singing about it today. And then one day I was driving along and I saw this car with a fish on, you know, the little fish. I looked, it was Anna. So when I saw her in the building later, I said, Anna, you're a believer. She said, yes, I am. 
I said, tell me about yourself. And she talked about her love of the soil, coming off a South Dakota farm. She talked about grass and flowers and trees. I said, would you? We're going to have an Easter afterglow service. Would you share with us how you came to belief and how God has involved you in his mission? She would. I'll never forget. She stood up and she said, I used to worry about everything. Be not anxious. Look at the birds and the flowers. Solomon arrayed in all his beauty was not like one of these. That's the kingdom, the mystery and the wonder of the kingdom. People sat with joy and listened as Anna said, and then I met Jesus. Now, he's the one that shares the kingdom. We know that. He's the one who models it. He's the one who empowers us with, with his life in this. Now, she said, I'm still concerned, but I don't worry anymore. So be it. And God bless us to get beyond just managing sin into the great wonder and joy and power of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. Dallas, come up. Dallas, talk with us a little as you've heard Roger. Just anything, uh, impressions that you feel picked up? The simplicity of the vision. The little child yeah, is the heart of it. Amen. And if we could just get beyond all of our concerns about one or another kind of peripheral thing and just live that. Yeah. Then the, that's where the kingdom comes. When, when Jesus says, of course, that unless you become a little child, you shan't enter the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about going to heaven when you die. No, no, he's no. talking about stepping into it right now. Yeah. And that's the invitation to all of us. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Roger. It's so simple. Yes. Uh, Dallas, I want to ask you, people are looking for formulas. They want to, we're so pragmatic. We want to work up an arrangement. Yeah. How, how does a person... Get the mind and heart of a child. Is there any how that can be spoken? Well, yes, but it's not formulable. Oh, no. Uh, if, you, if you know how a little child looks to their parents, that's the secret. Uh, we've recently had this wonderful little granddaughter that was born in the middle of the board meeting last year, if you remember. <laughs> yes, we know about that. We should have named her Renovari, I think. <laughs> But she's named Larissa, and uh, it's uh, what has come back to me is how the little child just looks at its parents, just looks to its caretakers, yeah. and I think that is the simple thing that we look to God in that way. Yeah, and uh, as we do that, uh, we get past all of the clever tricks and concerns about what other people do and don't believe, and so on. And we just simply trust, like that little child, trust its parents. And uh, I think that's the secret of it. You know, Dallas, you mentioned in this uh, chapter two something that uh, has stuck with me for a long time. I remember it in manuscript form that uh, sociologically we can document that people are not growing spiritually. And you had said that, uh, that leaders 
are lament this, that in spite of their most vigorous efforts, that we're not growing spiritually. And then you add this sentence, let's consider a revolutionary thought. What if it's because of our efforts that people aren't growing? Can you, can you unpack that a little bit for us? What's going well, on? it's just a simple matter of looking at what we actually spend our time on. You know, I mean, what do we spend our time on? You've already made a comment on committees and things of that sort. And and of course, we have to we have to have ways of working. And there's no doubt about that. But yeah. the problem is that the things that come to center, to occupy the center of our attention, are actually peripheral. Yeah. They're peripheral. It's the painting the bathroom. That's the, the exactly. Yeah. It. That's exactly it. And uh, it's like I was saying last night, you know, what do you want on your tombstone? If you put the stuff we make central on our tombstones, maybe they are on our tombstones. Some of our churches turn into tombstones because they have that sort of written on them, you know. And uh, so it, it, uh, we just don't put the center center. We yeah. just don't do it. You know, Dallas, and that's speaking of tombstones, I remember... Uh, that wonderful description of that lovely lady that we just catch a glimpse of in the book of Acts. Her name was Tabitha or Dorcas. Yes. And it said of her that she was a woman full of good works yeah. and acts of charity. And I've yeah. always thought, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to be able to put over a life? Here's a person full of good works and acts of charity. Dallas, uh, you mentioned in this chapter about the importance of seeing Jesus as teacher and making the comment that that notion has gotten lost in our day. Now, can you help us understand what has brought that about? Why has that been lost to us? Well, I really think it's been mainly lost because of the battle and the struggle between modernism and fundamentalism, the way it's shaped up. And on the conservative side, people began to recognize that on the other side spoke of Jesus as teacher, it was a demotion that they were saying, well, he's just a man. And so they tried not to speak about that. And on the left side, the, the liberal side, they spoke of him as teacher, but nobody was really learning from him after a generation or two of liberalism because the earlier liberals were very different from contemporary right. ones. Uh, so on both sides, it's just lost. So that, again, see, that that is not placed at the center. I mean, suppose we said on the front of our churches, we exist to teach men and women, boys and girls, to do everything that Jesus said. Just imagine that. But that's lost because he's not thought of in that way on either side. Um, and uh, the recovery of that is necessary to renew this idea of apprentices, right. you know, and yeah. to invite people to simply come to learn. As he said, he invited, come learn of me. If our churches were simply devoted to that, then everything else would take care of itself. You know, for a time I was an apprentice electrician and my job was to follow the journeyman (laughs) and uh, listen to what he said and watch what he did and try to do it the way he did it and when I didn't do that 
I sure got into trouble a couple times flat on my back <laughs> from electrical shock. And I thought of that often as a model for me to think about apprenticeship to Jesus Christ. To watch how he lived when he was among us in the flesh, but also his living among us now in the Spirit. To listen to what he said in the Gospels that's recorded, but also to what he is speaking and saying today. And to try to do it the way he does it. Yeah. And no. to, you, you have a phrase there about living my life as he would live my life if he were I. Yeah. Now, that's the aim of the disciple, just like that fellow that you were following around. You were learning to do right. with your body and your mind what he would do if he were you. Yeah. Now, there are more than enough people here in this group today to revolutionize the world. Yeah. If everyone here would say, that is my only business in life, is to learn to lead my life the way Jesus would lead my life if he were I. You know, get the idea you've got to be kind of spiritually elite. You've got to have, you know, the whole rigmarole instead of believing that mechanics, people that haul garbage, people that are selling used cars can be God's men and women in those places. The kingdom can be seen there. And that's what we've been very short on. Our friend Elton Trueblood years ago Mm -hmm. said the the pastor is a player coach. It's a sense of of, of not only saying this is what ought to be done or can be be done is a better word. Mm -hmm. But I want to show you Mm -hmm. as best I can, Mm -hmm. you know, with all my weaknesses and foibles, how this is lived out. Mm -hmm. So that people are learning from us. Now, I watched Roger do this on, uh, I think it was a Tuesday morning or noon study for about 300 business people from downtown who would come as Roger taught and worked through the Gospel of John, I think in about a couple years or so, teaching that. And you know, people here are from all walks of life, and those are all honorable walks. And we want to learn, you want to learn, I want to learn, how to live in a way that would be pleasing to God, and only Jesus can teach us that. And Roger and Dallas, I want you to help me just to pray. Roger, could you begin, and we'll just chime in. as we... Our Father, you know our hearts and our minds and our wills. You know what brought us here. We pray for openness to receive what you long to give us. We pray that if there are areas of our life that we need to surrender, relationships that need to be healed, O Lord, bless us in that. Fill us afresh with your spirit, the spirit of Jesus, in such a way that we will reflect the kingdom, the reign, your reign in all of life. And teach us once again, O Lord, that we have made A terrible mistake in drawing lines and saying this is sacred and this is secular. And may we see life whole, this God-bathed world that you put us in. Mm -hmm. We thank you that we can be together, that we can grow in love, that we can affirm and encourage one another. And so we bless you and praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Lord, I hold before you and we together hold 
every person in this room who's a parent. Yeah. And working and dealing and raising children. Yeah. Would you bless these parents? Some of them single parents. Some together but not together and struggling. Some who live in the home together but differ on how to raise the children. Would there be a sense of the shalom of God? Oh, we ask. And it's like seeing parents and children playing together, talking together, being silent together with the television off. Yeah. And enjoying life together. We ask for it. Yeah. Lord, we ask that each of us here now, you would give us a vision of where we are, starting with our bodies and our past and all that has happened to us and our families and our place in this world. And help us to see each one that we stand at the doorway of heaven and that the ladder which Jacob saw come down into the ditch where he lay asleep extends to where we are. And the angels are ascending and descending upon the Son of Man who walks beside us and makes our place holy. And give us the vision to know that this is the place and this is the time. And you are the blessing and that your kingdom opens out before us to claim everything that we are and have. In these days and hours that we're here together, as we are in our hotel rooms and in meetings and as we fellowship and listen and speak to one another, solidify that vision so that it decorates the inside of our mind and is all over our thinking and feeling that we might know that we have set the Lord always before us. He is at our right hand. We shall not be moved. In Jesus' name. Amen. Again, that was Roger Fredrickson. Before Roger's passing, I was able to record a short interview with him. It's listed as episode number 27. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare podcast. This podcast is made possible by donations from people like you. You can support this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org slash donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find articles and other resources at our website, renovare.org. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing your questions or thoughts. You can email at renovare.org or tweet at Renovare. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Until next time, do remember that being kind costs you nothing. Be well, friends. Be well.